0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> so among the holdings of the National Museum of American History downtown is a volume entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's maybe better known as the Jefferson Bible. This is the book that Thomas Jefferson created using a razor and glue by cutting out and then assembling the passages of the Gospels that he felt best conveyed the life and the teachings of Jesus. What Jefferson didn't include in his book were any passages that talked about miracles, or the supernatural in any way, or anything that suggested that Jesus was divine. Jefferson's Bible ends with Jesus being laid in the tomb. So I think it's easy to look at that project of Thomas Jefferson's and pity it, mock it, dismiss it, as, you know, literally cutting and pasting the parts that he liked. But... When it comes down to us, I think that probably most of us would admit that there are some parts of the Bible, even parts of the Gospels, that we wouldn't mind taking a razor to. A few parts we would rather just were not there. And today's Gospel reading is probably one of them. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Jesus asks. No, I tell you, but rather division just razor that one right out. But with all respect to Mr. Jefferson, we don't come to the Bible looking for the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. We come to the Bible looking for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to put our razor and glue away, and we have to figure out what to make of hard passages like this one. And so how do we do that? How do we wrestle with texts like this? Texts that commentators often sort of quaintly refer to as the hard sayings of Jesus. Well, when we come to texts like this, we can and we probably should use study Bibles and commentaries and those are good and really helpful tools. And what makes them good and helpful tools is that They help us to consider different factors or different aspects of a text. But aside from our study Bibles and commentaries, we can keep some of those factors in mind whenever we're reading a text, whether we do it with the commentary or study Bible or not. So I want to, as we wrestle with this tough text this morning, I want to think about a a few of these tools that we use when we're trying to figure out what a scripture means. So the first tool is the question of context, trying to figure out what is the context of this particular passage. In other words, what's happening when whatever happens in the passage actually happens? What was going on before? What comes after? Where does this particular passage fit in the bigger picture of the book that it's part of. We divide up the books of the Bible into chapters and verses, but their authors sure didn't do that. So it's easy for us to to pull out a, a standalone text rather than looking at it as part of a whole. But to understand it, we have to understand that whole that it is a part of and where the particular fits in it. So, context for today's passage. Well, we are towards the end of chapter 12, and you might remember, way back in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke writes, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When we looked at that verse back at the end of June, I noted that that verse marks a really big shift in the Gospel of Luke. This, that verse begins Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which is to say his journey to the cross. From chapter 9, verse 51, all the way into chapter 19, Jesus is heading toward the cross. So everything he says and everything he does in those chapters we should read, we should look at in light of his focus and his mission, which was to die on the cross so that sin and death can be defeated and the reign and rule of God can be proclaimed. So that's sort of the bigger picture context within Luke's gospel. He is heading toward Jerusalem. And as we bring the context question in a little bit more tightly, what we find is that as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's mixing it up a little bit with the Pharisees and the lawyers, the religious authorities, because they don't like what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. He's healing people, he's casting out demons, and he's flouting all of their religious conventions. And Jesus has harsh words for them. Jesus has also been teaching his disciples to be prepared and to stay ready. Things are about to happen, he tells them. God is about to act in a big way and you need to be prepared and stay prepared. And so in that context... These words Jesus speaks about bringing fire to the earth, about bringing not peace but division, they make a little bit more sense. Jesus is heading towards his death. That's the baptism he talks about in verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He was already baptized by John in the Jordan years before. What he's talking about here is his baptism is his suffering and death. And what he's saying is the suffering and death that he's going to is not just some tragically unfortunate thing that happens to him. It is the key point of his purpose. It is the linchpin in this cosmic upheaval that is happening. There's a battle going on between God and Satan, between good and evil. And God is going to win, no question. God is going to defeat sin and death, and anything that is on the side of sin and death rather than on the side of life and love is going to be destroyed. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem because he is going to bring major change, cosmic change. And so there's an urgency here to Jesus' words. His death and resurrection won't be the final act of this battle. That will happen when he comes again. But this is a battle for sure. And so Jesus wants his listeners to hear and to understand the importance and the intensity of what he's about to experience. So our context helps us understand some of what's going on in these hard passages of Scripture. Another tool that we have when we're wrestling with texts like this is to consider the audience. So just like a a concert is played for an audience or a play is performed for an audience, a passage of Scripture is written for an audience. And in the case of the Gospels, there are actually two audiences that we have to consider. First, we ask, who was Jesus' audience in speaking these words? And if we look carefully at the text, we'll find that there are actually two different groups of people that Jesus is speaking to here. Our passage begins with Jesus talking. So we have to go back to see where it tells us who he's talking to. And if you go back to verse 22, Luke writes, And he said to his disciples... So everything that comes after that is Jesus talking to his disciples until Luke tells us he starts talking to somebody else. Which is what he does in verse 54 in our passage. He also said to the crowds. We know from earlier in chapter 12 that there are crowds of thousands of people who are following Jesus. So some of today's passage is spoken to them. First, he starts off speaking to his disciples, and that is where he's talking about bringing fire and division. That is spoken to those who are already committed to Jesus and to his mission. What Jesus is doing here is rawly and honestly sharing his heart. He may be frustrated. He may be angry. He's definitely intense, And he is speaking deeply and honestly to people who are close to him and people who are committed to him. And then the second part of the passage, which is about needing to understand the signs of the times, to understand what's going on around you, that part is addressed to the crowds. To people who are interested in Jesus, they've come out to hear him. But they're not quite committed to being his disciples. This part is a more general audience. And what Jesus is saying is that what he is doing and what he is saying, this ought to be of concern to them also. He says, look... You guys are good at paying attention to the weather. You see clouds coming in, you know there's going to be rain. You see wind from the south, you know it's going to be hot. You pay attention to those things and you're prepared. But you need to be paying attention to the bigger stuff that's going on. Not just the clouds and the rain and the sun, but the presence and the action of God. What Jesus is doing here is calling the public To pay attention to the things of God. So that is the audience that Jesus is speaking to, and it helps us understand some of what he's saying. But remember I said there are two audiences we have to think about. So the first is the audience Jesus is talking to, but there's also the audience that Luke was writing to. Each of the four Gospels was written by a different person and each was written for different people. And the people that the author was writing for, that affects how the author told the story, how he arranged the material, what he emphasized. And so for Luke, his audience was primarily Gentile Christians. He was writing primarily to non-Jews who had, become, who had come to believe in Jesus. And one of the things this group of people was really concerned about was Jesus's return. They knew that Jesus had ascended into heaven and he had promised that he would come back and they were waiting. And as the years went by, they were wondering what that was that going to happen? When was it going to happen? And so, part of what Luke is doing by telling us this story about Jesus, by giving us these words that he spoke, part of what Luke is doing is assuring his readers or listeners that Jesus can be trusted, that Jesus was about this bigger picture, this cosmic picture that his life and death were a part of, that battle between God and Satan. And Luke is saying that battle is still going on, but you people can trust that God will bring it to completion. And just like Jesus was telling his disciples not to be lazy or complacent, through telling this story, Luke is telling his listeners, don't be lazy, don't be complacent, but be ready. Pay attention to what is going on, not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. Be ready, pay attention. So we think about the audience, that helps us understand tough passages of scripture like this. And then there's one more tool that I wanna talk about today, and that is the tool of reading scripture in light of scripture. We use other parts of scripture to help us understand any given passage, because all of scripture is inspired by God, and because all of scripture is ultimately telling one big story. So, take for example what Jesus says when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I wish it were already burning up, is what he's saying. Well, if we want to understand what he means by that, we should think about where fire shows up elsewhere in Luke and in the rest of the Bible and think about what it means there. That's going to help us understand what Jesus is talking about here. So if you were to flip back to Luke chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, we hear John the Baptist say this to the people who are coming to him for baptism. He says, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, he's talking about Jesus, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you get two things going on here with this picture of fire. One, this fire burning things up. This is a fire of judgment. And I think that's probably what most readily comes to mind for us when we hear a passage like this. We think Jesus is talking about, I'm just going to burn it all down in judgment. And that's part of what he's talking about. John the Baptist shows us, tells us that there will be judgment and that fire is a symbol of judgment. But he also says that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we think about what fire also represents, the presence of God. Think about the uh, tongues of fire that came to rest on the disciples on Pentecost. And remember that Luke wrote that story too. Think about the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness in Exodus Fire represents the presence of God. And so part of what Jesus is saying here is that he is coming to bring the presence of God to the earth. And then fire also is purifying. In the prophets Zechariah and Malachi, they both use an image of silver being refined by fire. So using fire to burn up all the impurities in silver. And that's a way of talking about God's work. So Jesus is also talking about purifying his people. Making them righteous and holy. Judgment. The presence of God, the purifying power of God. There is a lot that Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about bringing fire to the earth. And then he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So wait a minute. This doesn't sound like the Jesus we think we know, right? Jesus is not about bringing peace. Well, we have to see. What else does Luke say about peace? He writes about the angels who say to the shepherds when Jesus is born, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So Jesus' birth brings peace. Jesus actually says to a number of people that he heals, go in peace. And when he appears to his disciples after his resurrection, he says to them, peace to you. Actually, the word peace shows up more in Luke's gospel than in any of the other gospels. So that tells us that Jesus is not not about peace. What I think it tells us is that Jesus is not about peace that comes at all costs. Jesus is not about fake peace that covers up real differences. And he's telling his disciples that following him will cause division. So when people became disciples of Jesus in those days, they often had to leave behind their family because their family would basically kick them out. They would disown them. They were not being faithful Jews, or they were not being good pagans. So there was division in families when people chose to become disciples of Jesus. And that happened in the early decades and centuries of the church, and it happens today. I heard one seminary professor talking about a student of his who came to him and said, in high school, when I became a Christian, my parents kicked me out of the house and the student spent the rest of high school living in a friend's home. Following Jesus creates division, not for its own sake, but because when you choose to follow Jesus, you you must in some way turn your back on everything else. When we choose to follow Jesus, we have to decide that he is most important. The things that he cares about and calls us to are most important, and that will create division. When Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but division, he's not saying that division and conflict are good. He's saying they're inevitable. Because remember, he is part of this bigger picture, this bigger battle between good and evil and God and Satan. Jesus is acting in that realm. And so when people line up with him, when they join his side, there are consequences. There is division. So we've thought about context, audience, reading scripture in light of scripture. These are tools that we have to come to any passage, but particularly they're helpful with tough passages like this. And so what have these tools taught us? They've taught us that there is a big battle that is happening, that the stakes are high, and Jesus wants his disciples to know it. He wants them to know that justice will come and prevail. He wants them to know that evil and sin and death will be judged and will be destroyed. He wants them to know that God is present on the earth among his people. And he wants them to know that God will refine and purify his people, even if it's painful. And all of that is as true for us as it was for the disciples that he said it to. We need to know that there is more to our lives than what we can see in front of us. There is more to what is going on in the world than what is visible. Jesus has, through his death and resurrection, turned the tables. All is being made new. All is being put right. It hasn't been completed yet, but that is what Jesus has done, and He wants us to know how big that is, how important and urgent that is. And he wants us to know, just like he wanted his disciples to know, that the inevitable result of that battle, that struggle, the inevitable result is division. This is going to cost you, Jesus says. Be prepared. And we should be prepared for that. It doesn't mean we go out and seek conflict. It doesn't mean we throw Jesus in people's faces to make them mad at us or make, because we think we're better than everybody else. It's that when we live as disciples of Jesus, when we live empowered by his spirit, when we live a life of love for God and neighbor, people are not going to like it because it challenges everything that they've decided is more important. We've said Jesus is most important, so when somebody else who said something else is most important comes into conflict with that, they're not going to like it. So we need to remember that there will be division because we follow Jesus, and we should be prepared for that. And we need to pay attention just like those crowds that Jesus was talking to they paid a lot of attention to the weather they maybe didn't pay so much attention to the kingdom of god we need to pay attention there are a lot of things we pay attention to to news to our families to what's going on in the world to our jobs to our hobbies all of those things are good but we, if we only pay attention to them and we lose sight of the bigger picture that we are part of, then we are not going to be ready to see and to participate in the work of God. We need to not just let ourselves be satisfied by looking at the weather. We need to look for the kingdom of God. There's one final thing I want to note in this text. It's right at the beginning, and I actually think it sets the whole structure, the whole framework for understanding this text, where Jesus is saying hard stuff, and he is talking about judgment, and he is talking about conflict, and he is talking about a bigger battle. So the first two verses of our passage, he says, "'I came to cast fire on the earth, would that it were already kindled.'" I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished? Jesus is part of what happens. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to rain down fire and be somewhere over there. He says, there will be fire. I have a baptism of suffering and death. That is the judgment that he takes on himself. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I can't wait for it to happen. Not because he's excited about it, but because it's so, the need for it is so deep in his soul. His desire for the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God on the earth, is so strong that he cannot wait to go through this baptism of suffering and death for the sake of his people. What Jesus is saying here is that he has got skin in this game. There is no judgment. There is no refining that Jesus himself didn't willingly experience. God does not inflict suffering on us if God has not willingly experienced that suffering himself. And that makes all the difference. I don't know if any of you all watched uh, this week on CNN, Anderson Cooper interviewed Stephen Colbert. It is worth watching regardless of what you think of his politics or anything else. Colbert is a committed Catholic. He speaks openly about his faith, not usually on his show, but he does. And he is someone who has suffered a lot in life. So he is the youngest of 11 children. And when he was 10 years old, his father and two of his brothers were killed in a plane crash. And it, as you would imagine, devastated his mother and the rest of the family. And Stephen was the one who was at home. So he talks a lot about how he tried to make his mother laugh. And that's where his comedy came from. But he's talking with Anderson Cooper in this interview about suffering. Because Anderson Cooper lost his father at the age of 10 as well. And Colbert says this, he says, it's a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. What do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply. And so at a young age, I suffered something, so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life, with friends or with my wife or with my children, I'm understanding that everybody is suffering and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and connect with them and love them in a deep way (coughs) that accepts that all of us suffer, but then also makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so you can know that about other people. And Anderson Cooper responds to this, and he says, this is part of being alive, sadness, suffering. You can't have happiness without having loss and suffering. And Stephen Colbert responds quickly. He says, in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, that God does it too. You are really not alone alone. God does it too. What we see in this passage is a Jesus who speaks of judgment, of refining, of God's presence. He speaks of division, of pain and loss. But the good news is that none of that that we will go through is foreign to God because he has done it too. That is the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ. You're really not alone. God does it too. Amen. Amen.